They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabolo. And I'm Joe McGarry. We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we have two leaders with us from the Decolonized Lutheranism Movement, uh, Lenny Duncan and Francisco uh, Herrera. They are here, and why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves. Well, I am Lenny Duncan. I am a MDiv co-op student out of the Lutheran Theological Seminary, and I, I guess I just identify as a member of Decolonize, I guess would be a simple way of putting it. So, yeah, cool. Um, I am a PhD student at the Lutheran Seminary here, focusing on global Christianity and world mission. It, you know, the funny thing about decolonized Lutheranism, it started as a response to the old Lutheran memes. And I don't know if you're familiar with that company. They sell t-shirts yeah. and mugs and that sort of a thing. And then a pastor out of Texas named Paul Bailey posted a meme in response to one of the, like, one of the covered dish memes they always put up. Right. You might be Lutheran if. So his response was, you might be Lutheran if. And then he, you know, it was tostadas and tamales. and yeah, all yeah, this. Yeah. That was his response to that. What happened on that thread was some of the ugliness that we get as church, right? So when we gather, it's a group of broken sinners who gather. And sometimes we can really interact with each other in very broken ways. So there was some pushback on that thread and uh, L. Dowd, a candidate who will be starting in Chicago, um, one of the top eight seminaries in the area, uh, in the country, um, yep. uh, she put hashtag decolonize Lutheranism. Hmm. From that point on, a bunch of us had been working on this kind of stuff on our own. I know Francisco was already working on a conference of sorts around these ideas, and clearly his PhD studies, which he'll talk more about, are really focused on these areas. Um, I had done the webcast with Bishop Eaton um, about systemic racism in the criminal justice system, and a few others, uh, Kwame Pitts, who's working on the ELCA Votes campaign. Uh, just just so many of us, where were, we immediately grabbed onto that hashtag, and it seemed like it was a Holy Spirit kind of moment where we just, it was a way of voicing something that was like deep down in each one of us. And it just gave us a way to gather in social media um, those conversations in one place. The thing that I would add, though, is, is that just about all of us were already friends on Facebook. And many of us had known each other for a few years. The kind of force I always tell people is so the one of the things that you do when you're in academia <clears throat> is that conferences are really nothing more than an excuse to hang out with your friends there you go <laughs> so I thought it was sometime really about the early spring I thought you know what let's have a conference called you're Lutheran to talk about the fact that there are all these different voices but as soon as I saw the decolonized Lutheranism meme come up. And I talked with Lenny. I talked with my friend Ray, Iron Ray. She's another PhD student here at the Lutheran School. She tends to focus on queer issues and Trinitarian theology. I talked with her. I talked with um, Kwame. I talked with a number of folks, some people in Texas, Angie Shannon. She's another person who's really active with us. I said, hey, would you guys be interested in coming up here and doing a conference? And everyone said, yeah. But as soon as I saw the decolonized Lutheranism hashtag, I thought, boom. One of them, one of my, I call him my step advisor here, is a guy named Jose David Rodriguez. He's um, Augustana Chair for Global Mission and things like that. And he's a very respected Latino theologian from Puerto Rico. And he once told me when I had a real sit down, because I was, I was flat honest with him. He preached this amazing sermon where he talks about himself. He talked about himself and his frustration with the church. And I told him, I was like, why should I waste my time with this church? Why? Why should I spend so much energy and so much time and pour in so much of my blood into a church that may or may not really even bother caring about me, let alone seeing me as a human being? That's a really, that's a really great question. And he said, well, Francisco, you have to, he says, you have to do what you have to do. 
He says, but, but you have to wait until conditions are right. And as soon as I saw that hashtag, I thought, you know what? That's it. Boom. So yeah. I immediately started a thread and I said, okay, guys, remember that conference? We're going to have a decolonized Lutheranism conference. We're going to have it here in Chicago. And this is what we're going to do. Because I knew that people were going to be looking for concrete things. We were, had already been talking about this as friends for months, if not some of us for years. The Holy Spirit came down that day. Then next thing you know, we're all actively working on these things little by little. The division of, I would, I mean, division of labor, basically. All of us clearly had a very useful skill set um, that immediately helped to feed into this. Next thing you know, we start making some connections with a lot of other folk. It became very clear that folks wanted to kind of latch on. But it was also clear that folks wanted to, they basically wanted us to do their things. There were basically traditional white voices and leaderships within the ELCA that came to us essentially wanting to try to co-opt us on some level. They probably weren't doing it consciously. So that's when Lenny had the really great idea. He said, you know what? We need to get a website up. We need to have some kind of a rallying point. Let's get this thing done. He drew up kind of a, a basic outline that was the, which was the starting point for the discussion that when you go to the Our Beliefs page on the Decolonized Lutheranism yep. website. Yeah, it's got the four points. The four points we, yeah. we hashed, Lenny kind of set the, set the theme, his basic ideas. We then brainstormed collectively as a group, and then we put that page up. We kind of smoothed it out. And so now we have a good place to kind of rally together and to attract interest. Because I, I certainly know that there are people in this church, and I, I speak from a very strong place of bias. I, I, was program, I was program assistant for the Multicultural Center here at the Lutheran Seminary for two years. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also one of the founders of the Latino, we have a Latino student ministry group here called Corazon, which is the Spanish word for heart. And uh, I'm also the the blog manager for the diversity blog here. And so I am very, very, very sensitive to the idea of what it means when people of color in this church, when alternative leadership voices in this church actually have the chance to speak and lead, and when there are other people from the dominant voice who are constantly telling them how they're supposed to speak and lead. Mm -hmm. And so it was really nice for Lenny to kind of put that side up so we have a place to sort of stake our claim and say, this is what we're about. Right. And, and that's because there were, you know, so many of us were already writing about this, right? So I put up a thing on my, on my personal website, uh, Decolonized Lutheranism was like one of my early blogs about it. Then I did Decolonize the Liturgy, which, by the way, guys, you know the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. That's right. <laughs> right, right. That's right. I mean, the, the reaction was visceral. Um, to say the least. Um, yeah. And so I just felt like we needed one place because like, you know, a lot of these ideas were getting attached to individuals, but we were all very consciously aware it was a group effort. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to create one platform for one voice where, where we could kind of disseminate information and give people something to focus and wrestle with. To be honest, in our very early planning stages, I was coming from a very liberation theologians place. Mm -hmm. I've only been ELCA for a few years. I'm discovering that's a very strange place for some folks to start. I think that's the big thing, too, is now, now that there's a central location where people can log on, get involved, take a look at so, what, where we're coming from, and actually give it a voice. But to, to Francisco's point, there are a lot of well-meaning folks who want to get involved, you know, great allies, right, who, who are really caring members of the body of Christ and see some of the systemic racism and problems inherent in the church but then, because they've been steeped in that culture, don't realize that they're unconsciously acting out those same scenarios when they interact with us. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yep. yep. We're Lutheran. If this is decolonized Lutheranism, and if we're really, really talking about what it means to be Lutheran, I don't know if any of you guys are savvy to things that have been going on here at campus, at the Lutheran School. But there was a, there was a bit of a to-do a few weeks ago where there was an all-white faculty that was put together to discuss this question of law and gospel and Lutheran theology and preaching, even though we have faculty of color here. 
And the professor of Christian ethics, before the beginning of the panel, a guy named Richard Perry, he's a professor here for 20 years, African-American, he read a very, very terse statement saying that I have been dealing with this kind of marginalization my whole career. Mm. And it's sick. I'm sick of it. And he said, this panel needs to dissolve. And for those of you who are interested, I suggest we all move downstairs to, to his class and we're going to talk about this. And he said, if, it is, if we're going to be Lutheran, the purpose of being Lutheran is Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession. And if that's what it takes to be Lutheran, it's not being white that makes us Lutheran. And he says, I'm tired of people constantly sidestepping my voice as a black Lutheran because I'm not white. And he said, if we're going to be Lutheran, and if Article 4 is what it means for us to be Lutheran, then this needs to be the judge of whether or not someone's Lutheran, not whether or not they're, uh, they are Lutheran enough because they have cultural practices that are, that are white or Lutheran, not because they're Norwegian or Scandinavian, but because they abide by Article 4. Richard Perry made a point of that. It is, the article, it is justification. That, that is really the thing we come back to as Lutherans. And what does that mean to talk about justification if you're Mexican? What does that mean to talk about justification if you're native? What does that mean to talk about justification if you're African-American? And the fact that that needs to be the rallying point. But of course, knowing that a good number of people who are going to be uncomfortable with what we're talking about, talking about justification helps so they can see doctrinally we are Lutheran. Because I've been using uh, James Cone and his scathing indictment against <laughs> the Reformation. Right, right, right. right. Some people will say to me, are, why are you even here? Aren't you Lutheran? Don't you love this church? And I, I, I just want to be clear, and everything I do is for my deep and abiding love for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I love my church. So it's, it's not necessarily talking about dissolving Lutheranism, but it's kind of opening up and realizing that Lutherans are more diverse than just white folks, right? The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is in a massive minority of Lutheranism worldwide. Right. Right. This is the big reason why I've really been enjoying decolonizing Lutheranism, because I came to not only to Lutheranism, but to Jesus in an extremely multicultural church in Geneva, Switzerland, where we had 47 languages, 47 different nationalities spoken and 39 different languages spoken in one community. 47 different That's nationalities. That's incredible. One yeah. language. When we said the Lord's Prayer, we said it in our own language. And it sounded like a wind. When I was coming of age in the 90s, Christians were always the highly organized, rich white folks that were constantly telling me and my friends we were going to hell. I knew that wasn't true. And I'd always had a real strong call to the faith. But I just couldn't get over the bump. And then I go to this church when I was living in, in Europe. And suddenly I understood. The gospel is for the world. I saw the, sh the, the total global pull of the gospel the shock of the Holy Spirit, I was pretty much converted right there. And there is a whole global communion out there that we are a part of. Right. And um, that the Holy Spirit is pulling us and binding us together and trying its best to bind us together. All we want to do is show, hey guys, that global diversity is right here. Yeah. Francisco, I, I love when you get fired up, man. <laughs> <laughs> But an example, my field education site for my first year, a little bit about my background, my undergraduate's in New Testament theology, so I did two years of field education before I even got to seminary. Yeah, sure. So really, it's like my third year, and I'm at this, I was at this little church in Upper Darby, PA, right? It's arguably one of the most diverse churches in the ELCA. 21 countries represented, mostly, mm -hmm. mostly Liberian mm -hmm. um, refugees, <laughs> You and know, those, and those people know suffering in Lutheranism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and have been Lutheran their whole lives. One of the people on church council, if you ever read the book Mighty Be Our Powers, yes. was one of the church council members who decided to open that church and, and her story to the refugees who were coming into the city to avoid war. Um, another guy who swept up the front of the church every day, half his hand was cut off from blocking a machete. Wow. wow. You know what I mean? And every day yeah. he came out and he swept up the church of his own free time and of his own free will. And so that is, that's just as Lutheran as cheesy potatoes. If we could talk a little bit about 
those four things listed on your beliefs page, just so folks who might not have any idea what, what this movement is about, just to, to get a little more insight. Is that okay? Well, when folks go to the website, www.decolonizelutheranism.org, and they go to the list of beliefs, just want to make sure that's where you can find this stuff so you can see it yourself. Yep. Again, I just think about what Dr. Perry said, but the idea is, is that our greatest gift to the world, and actually it's one of our members, L. Dowd, she's the one who made this point. Our greatest gift to the world as Lutherans is our theology. The recognition of human beings as simultaneously sinner and saint, the theology of the cross, and our, and our holy insistence upon the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But the most important thing is the doctrine of justification. This notion that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. This has been accomplished by Jesus. And if you even go back into the Greek, the notion of justification actually has a, a function like you find in court, right? Literally that you were innocent. That even though we do not deserve to be called innocent because of our, the way we live our lives and the way that we mess up creation, the way we mess up relationships, because of Christ, we are all found innocent before God. And if this is the case, then everything, all of the cosmos, all of creation is also found to be justified before God. So it seems to be that if we are going to claim our mantle as being Lutheran, then we have to ground ourselves in something distinctly Lutheran. And so for me, it was really important to start with this because this is, this is one of the great things that, that Luther gave the world. Now, mind you, he also left a really nasty treatise on the Jews, yeah, um, which I'm going to be talking about with some folks in a few weeks. And he really was pretty horrible when it came to insurrectional power. You know, his his writings against the, during the, the peasant wars are pretty, it's pretty rough reading. But this thing of his has abided. And so I think it's a really, really great point for us to say, look, yes, we may be doing things differently. Yes, we may be a strain of Lutheranism that you're not used to, but you know what? We are Lutheran because this is where we began as a community. That, that'll preach. That's good. Yeah. I, I guess to the second point, uh, decolonized leadership, particularly, I guess, in our friend group, there's a lot of person of color, there's a lot of queer folk in our friend group. Um, there's a lot of women in our friend group. This idea that the time has finally come for marginalized communities to, to, to take center stage in the church. I mean, I mean, let, let's face it. Um, uh, the church is the day of the cathedral is dead. The day of of the church being the center of all community, the the center of the community where everyone turns to for leadership and for guidance, yeah, is over. Right. So, so the church is broke. It's by itself, and no one's really listening to it. I mean, in my opinion, the church is about as black as it's ever going to be. But I mean, those marginalized voices leading us into the twenty first century, people of color the disabled, all genders, and gender non-conforming folk, I mean, including our trans folk, uh, women, different sexualities, in my case, someone who was formerly incarcerated in prison, people despite their immigration status, all the stuff we talk about in the second point, it's time to let those folks lead us into the 21st century. And another great point, social respectability or social perceptions of right behavior. <laughs> That's it. Like, Like, why do I have to... And I get this all the time at the seminary. Um, I, I get looked at askance by my peers because I don't play the social respectability or a Minnesota nice church game. Uh -huh. Like, I, I don't believe in nice church. I, I don't read about a nice church in the gospel, and I certainly don't read about a polite Lord. Um, and that's my model for leadership. Jesus and his disciples, not uh, a camp. I didn't go to camp. I went to well, I went to camps, but they were different kind of camps. But I didn't go to church camp as a kid. But that idea that every member of the church is aware of and respect all the voices in the room, um, and not just the most evident or the numerous, um, and that this idea that it's all part of God's beautiful chorus, it's all part of this beautiful symphony the Lord's playing for us within the body of Christ. And, you know, and that, and that it's okay to question good order. We're all about the candidacy committees, the wider church, the synods keeping good order. But when good order is used to suppress, either consciously or unconsciously, prophetic voices within the church, we're stifling the Holy Spirit, we're stifling change, and we're just going to end up with the same product that we've been putting out for years, which all of us are very consciously aware 
is not as relevant and seems to be failing in our society today. Right, right. Amen. So decolonize the story comes from this idea of decolonizing the liturgy, So, <laughs> which, which is how it started with me. And the liturgy, I like kind of discovered I'm a liturgist, speaking of social respectability and things you probably shouldn't say. <laughs> um, I discovered recently that I, I have a deep, deep abiding love for liturgical theology, which is kind of like discovering you have herpes. Um, you don't want to tell me. <laughs> like, like you have to inform the people you love. I have this thing. Um, it's, it's, and it's a, it's a, it's a scratch you have to itch. Um, it may be contagious. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really bad. And, and, you're, and when you're a professor of liturgical theology, make sure you put that on your syllabus. I, I, <laughs> like, I'm definitely going to put that on my syllabus, but that's what it was. It was like this really gross discovery for me. I was like, Oh my God, I'm a liturgist. This is awful. He had to call it's, up his old churches, his old professors. Like, let them know. I get this from you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. You got to run through the list of people you've been in contact with. <laughs> so, so, so I've discovered this about myself. And, and so part of the deal is, is decolonizing the story. The way we tell the story of God creates an image of God, whether we like it or not. So as Lutherans, we cannot be defined solely by Northern European cultural identity markers. Um, since I'm an old radical from the 90s, I call it uh, Eurocentricity. You know, um, there's a, the, you know the, the, to raise up alternative historical and theological narratives, it takes center stage in our, in, our, in our church's culture, in its liturgies, its hymns, its polity, worship, food, poetry, art, and even the ways that we live together and we do pastoral care. Why that's so important is, is a couple pieces. The first piece is I'm not calling for throwing out the liturgy. I love the liturgy. Um, I think we can strip it bare like we do the altar on mm -hmm. Maudie Thursday. Amen. Yep. I, you know, I really think we can get to word, bath, and meal and use those as starting points, these 1,800-year-old ancient Christian traditions and detie and and detangle them from this sort of white Eurocentric model and theology, which has somehow become a way that expresses our confessional identity. When really we need to revitalize that and breathe yeah. new life into it in Lutheran communities across the United States. So some of the things that I'm kind of working on is I'm working on an exorcism right to be used at. Um, at 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 uh, protests, it's an exorcism right for systemic racism, right? Yep. A way of being a visible sign and facing evil, right? But co-opting the liturgy to accomplish these goals, you know, I I'm so sick of seeing Doobie Brother Jesus. I don't want a black Jesus. I just want a Jewish one. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so, and so it's all these things, they, they, they kind of pile up and become collectively this mosaic of, that only reflects European culture. It's in our music, which are mostly written by white men. Yep. It's in our liturgies, which is mostly decided by white men. Um, and it's in the way we worship. And, and, and you would be surprised, but this is where I've gotten the most pushback. I can tell someone they're suffering from white supremacy and they need to check their privilege and they'll sit down and smile with me if they're ELCA Lutheran. I tell them we need to change something in the way we worship and they want to they want to they literally want to string me up. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about de decolonization of the story and specifically the liturgy, are are you talking about Sunday morning worship experiences or outside of worship experiences like worshiping in the world or is it all both and? I, I would I would say yes yes okay. <laughs> the answer to, the answer to that would be yes um, and 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 for all kinds of different reasons how we as the as an incarnational community disrupt sin and disrupt the brokenness of the world is with our worship when Christ is the closest to us and if we're only doing it in ways that represent a small subset of people on a world scale who are you know. Um, 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 engaging in that ritual the world over, we're almost, it's almost like we're completely out of step with the rest of the world. Mm. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 
it's become a, a passion that I didn't expect. Um, so for those for those of you who give to the fund for leaders, your money is being spent well. Just saying. So you know. <laughs> and and for for folks to understand that you know kind of what you're talking about a little bit more, especially with the Sunday morning experience, what does that look like? Do you have a vision of what that may look like? I certainly have a I have a vision of it, um, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure Francisco does too. We're talking very contextual stuff though here, right? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, like, I'm not asking someone in Minnesota to suddenly start like integrating like Kosa, like South African hymns, you know what I mean, in the midst of their worship. I mean, but I don't see anything wrong with doing that, too. So, I mean, you're talking about stripping down the, the precious ELW and LBW and adding completely new and different music just to start. And then you're talking about taking our Eucharistic prayers and make them maybe a little bit more radical and maybe a little bit more forward-facing towards social justice. And then, you know, I mean, you're talking a complete overhaul of the liturgy, but it would still fall mostly the same ordo that we've all fallen in love with, you right. know? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've really resonated with the the strip it bare piece when I read it, and it, I enjoyed hearing you listen to, listen to you explain a little bit too. I mean, I just think so many of the things we do are canned, you know, like the prayers, for example. Like you know, if you use Sundays and seasons, you're you're reading prayers that somebody else wrote probably a year ago with no clue what you're doing in your own community. Why are we using those? I mean. I know somebody spent a lot of time on them, but at the same time, like, why are we not praying for each other in a way that makes sense to our church? Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, that's just one little example. And now you're talking about the diversity of people that we could connect with. Yeah, makes sense to me. I had this dual moment. So after Charleston, right, I had like this, I had this yes and moment. So I came home that day. Um, I had just been entranced a couple months before into the candidacy process and my wife my wife who's who's jewish um had this very real moment where she realized that on a wednesday night i'd probably be at a bible study because i'm probably going to get sent to a community of color and community of colors what you do is you have bible studies on wednesday and that easily could have been me and as we sat there just wrecked by this i mean Mm -hmm. we couldn't even talk we're crying we're praying together this whole deal right it became um, a couple things. I logged on to the ELCA clergy page that day, and people were complaining because Bishop Eaton, who I love, right, sent a liturgy of lament. Yes. And you should have heard people. Yeah. I've already written my sermon. I don't want to change anything. We've been planning this liturgy for a while. Yeah, I remember Am that. I supposed- yeah. you know, right? So, so that's when I... Well, right. Maybe- of color that were ready to jump ship because of that. There were right. so many people of color that had it not been for Rosella Haiti White's post uh, embracing my shadow where she talked about what happened to her when she openly critiqued a bunch of Lutherans that she was at a conference back in June right after the, right after the massacre at, uh, in Charleston. Between that and then the, the conversation on racism, there were a lot of people of color who were about ready to jump ship. But it was a catalyst moment for a lot of us because we've been dealing with this kind of crap for years. Mm-hmm. And because Dylan Roof is a baptized, confirmed member of an ELCA church, and God bless his pastor because he's had a real hard job, we need to really sit down and say what that means. What's also interesting is that there's actually a seminarian here who is from South Carolina named Drew. And he wrote one of the most amazing sermons, and he preached it at his internship site right after that. And he really set up a model. It's like, no, we need to repent of this. There are reasons why that kind of thinking was able to pass through for so long. And it's time that we really face that. And I think that was, that was really the catalyst moment, I think, for many of us, where we really realized, okay, um, we're done. We're done always waiting for someone to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. We're done sitting back and letting and letting decisions constantly happen for us, even though all of these people are constantly saying that they want to hear what we have to say. We're done. We're just going to start speaking out. 
And they're really starting over last summer has just been a profusion of people, people of color within the ELCA, but also a good number of our queer brothers and sisters as well, who have really been coming up to the plate and saying, we have to change something because this kind of thing should not be happening in our churches. It should not be happening in our country. And we need to, and, and Bishop Eden talked about this in more than a couple of times, especially the second conversation that she had with Lenny. What would it be like if the ELCA, as a 96% white church, what would happen if the ELCA modeled a way to deal with the realities of racism in this country, modeled that in its churches? And so that's been a really, really powerful thing for a lot of us to finally get some kind of massive church-wide recognition is like, yeah, we really have to do something. Absolutely. And then to see her on the stage, she was the only white person during that funeral on the stage. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that, it was a powerful visual. And, and that's yeah. when I knew. So, so I was like, you know, there was that moment of, am I in the right church? Right. And then there was that moment of seeing Elizabeth Eaton and saying, I'm in the right church. So, um, Francisco, decolonized evangelism has been your baby since day one. You want to take the lead on that? Because I love Jesus! Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love him! I love him! I got a Nick this Fish tattooed on my left pet sisters, brothers, and everyone in between. I love Jesus. I love him. Why? Do so many people in this country, in this church, why are they so ashamed of their faith in Jesus? I think somewhere Mark said something about that. Those who are ashamed of me before my father, I will then be ashamed of them before God? I just don't get it. You want to talk about something that can decolonize this church? Start evangelizing because you know what? Our brothers and sisters in Asia certainly love Jesus and they go everywhere. Last time I checked, I think that Korea actually per capita sends the largest number of missionaries out in the world. Korea, not to mention our brothers and sisters in West Africa, in North Africa, in China. You know, and this country needs Jesus. It does. But we need to show a Jesus that resonates with the reality of our past as a church. That we understand that we have things to repent of, both as an institution and as a, and as a faith and as a people. We got to get on our knees and pray and crawl and throw some ashes on it. Because, you know, as a church, we've kind of screwed up. But God is going to be with there to help pick us up and show us the way to go. And if the church that so many people in this country don't like and that we are actively trying to atone for, but at the same time to go forward and to bring people into the church, they're going to want to see this kind of humbled Christianity. They're going to want to see... Christians that say, yeah, the church has really screwed up. Yeah, we did this. Yeah, we were tools for racism and violence. Yeah, we've been, you know, so often the eager lubricant of capitalism and the exploitation of black and brown people all over the world. Yes, we have done this as a church, but we were repenting of this. And it, this kind of, 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 a, of a broken and still trying and still loving God and still loving Jesus, this is the kind of thing that people will resonate with. I do a lot of evangelizing at open mics. Oh, that's interesting. And if there's one thing that I have noticed pretty consistently, these cats that I talk to, I've, they, they are very critical of Christians and the church, but man, they never say anything bad about Jesus. <laughs> yeah. They <laughs> never say anything bad about Jesus. I remember this one trans woman went up and read a poem where Jesus was the head of a board of directors that got voted off the board by a bunch of Christian pundits. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I started seeing that, I just told myself, okay, I got to do something here. So I would go, um, I've been really heavily influenced by a guy named David Rhodes. He's the former New Testament professor here at the Lutheran Seminary in Chicago. And he does this thing called performance criticism. So he gets his students to memorize large portions of scripture and then perform them from memory like stories. Yep. So I would do sections of chapters of the Gospel of Mark, as well as, you know, homilies, reflections, poems and stuff. And it was amazing the kinds of people that come forward. And so I just keep thinking, guys, the hunger is out there. 
people understand what the church has done. We know what we've done as a church, but we still have to proclaim. And what a wonderful source of power and light when we go out there and we really bring Jesus and the gospel to people. And so, and they know what it means to experience that power. They know what it means to be broken and to feel lost and lonely. But all of a sudden they're given this jolt of the Holy Spirit and they know that they are beloved of God and beautiful and perfect of every way. I, I, I feel so passionately about this. For me, it is crucial because we have a job to do. And this doesn't mean that everybody has to be an evangelist. It doesn't mean that everybody has to go out there, right? Some of us clearly are a little bit more engaged in evangelism than others. I get it. But come on, folks. Jesus loves us. Jesus has saved us. Jesus is bringing us into a new life every day. Don't you want to sing about it a little bit? Don't you want to invite somebody over to your house? I mean, that's the really interesting thing about about the about the fourth proposal is that the reason ELCA Lutherans, right? Like, and, and we've heard, we've all heard the jokes, right? Like, what do you get when you cross a Jehovah Witness and ELCA Lutheran? You get someone who knocks on your door and doesn't say anything, <laughs> and right, right. So, and and so that's a really interesting proposal that the guilt of and the weight and the burden of the past church's sins really weighs heavily on the ELCA for some reason. And that if we don't wrestle with that, we'll never get to a place where we can give, which is, you know, directly from Article 4 in our first proposal, the greatest gift that we have, which is the theology of the cross. I mean, that's what I find so interesting about that fourth point, um, and that by decolonizing that stuff, by taking a look at that stuff in our often troublesome history, right, that we try and write off as cranky Luther and all these, like, kind of dismissive remarks— if we really wrestle with that, we'll be able to raise up the cross and give the world the greatest gift we've ever been given, freely, and that is to encounter Christ in their daily life. And the reminder that we are all found innocent in the eyes of God. Absolutely. Right. Like, like what Luther said in Freedom of the Christian, how once we, the faith has come into our heart, we become like Adam and Eve before the fall. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to shout and share that, right? Yeah. From folks that I talk to in my congregation and, and others is, is that fear that when we are out there evangelizing or talking about Jesus, then the other messages that people hear about how, you know, Christ, the, the Christian hate that's out there in the world, that people would automatically assume that when you do talk about Jesus, that you are part of the Christian hate. And I think that makes people nervous. Um, so how do we get over get well, over here's that? Well, here's the deal. Engage those folks in conversation. Right, right. Don't get yeah. defensive. Listen to what they say. Take their barbs. When um, when I wrote my master's dissertation, my master's thesis on ministering to wounded Christians or recovering Christians, mm -hmm. people who used to be Christian, but they um, but they left the church because something happened, something really bad happened. Oftentimes, I was just there to listen to them listen to them share their story because they needed to have somebody to talk to about this that wouldn't judge them. So that's what I'd say right there. If folks get get really critical or angry, listen to them. Right. You are literally in the process of saying something to them. You are performing something of an exorcism. You're allowing for that evil demon of church abuse to come screaming out of them. Yeah. Listen to them. Do and what you do as a Christian who loves your fellow human. And 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 that's and that's and that's part of the deal too. I mean, seriously. I mean, the ministry of accompaniment doesn't mean white silence, right? That's what I always tell allies, like mm. when you're talking about racial injust injustice stuff. It doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean your silence. I mean, look at what's going on in our country right now. I mean, the, you know, you, <laughs> you. This is not a time for 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 people who are theologians of the cross to be silent about. Who Christ, what Christ, what Christ, I don't want to say true nature, but his nature as you've experienced him, you know? Yeah. Um, this is not a time to be silent about that sort of thing at all. And and, and it's actually reaching a critical mask um, where we've allowed for what, for various reasons, we have allowed to the, the this conversation to be hijacked by loud and incredibly abusive voices over the last 20, 30 years. And, it, and, and it's time to start having conversations in the other direction. Well, so one side of like being a prophetic voice is speaking truth to power, which you guys seem to have no problem doing. 
which is awesome. Uh, the other side of it. Until and, it's yeah. time for assignment, it's awesome. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Right, right. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, but the other the other side of the prophetic voice is kind of casting a vision forward. So just could you share with us just some hopes you have for where we might go as a church or where this voice uh, can lead the church moving forward? As a person of color and be, as someone who has really been very much on the ground about race and and diversity and stuff in the church, there are really two things that I tell folks. One, really pay attention to who's in your pews. Really make sure that you know who's who's there. And this, this is something that I say that applies not only to congregations that are trying to be more welcoming of folks who are diverse, but even congregations that are, you know, pretty much straight up German Lutheran or Swedish Lutheran. The things that we're talking about is allowing people to be who they are. Right. Yeah. And really loving them for who they are and understanding they don't have to prove themselves to be in your community. They don't need to be living up by any standards. Um, this, th- th- that, that problem is so destructive for the church. There's something to say about making sure folks are cool with each other, that you don't have destructive or violent personalities or people who are just conniving, that they, they cause physical harm or psychological harm for people. Um, there's something to say for that, but you know, really look at who's in your pews. Know what their stories are and really listen to them. The other thing, and again, because I get this conversation a lot, because when you're 96% white as a church, it's kind of hard to find people of color. So what I tell for congregations that say, or pastors that say, I wish we could be more welcoming of people of color, what I tell them is, is like, well, if you don't have any people of color because there literally are no people of color that live in your county in Nebraska, right? don't beat yourself up too much. The question is, is that when you do, when you have that undocumented family from Mexico that walks into your church one day, or you have the Nigerian expatriate family that's there for business, or you have the African-American company that recently located, African-American family that recently located because whatever, do they feel welcome in your church? Do they feel like your folks really care about them from the instant that they come in? Do people really welcome them into leadership positions if they come back a second time? Do people really go up and ask them how they're doing with their day? Those for me are really what I see as the vision of the church because there is such a a limit for um, what a lot of folks in the ELCA consider to be kind of comfortable engagement with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think once you kind of learn how to do that, as well as to be aware of like what your own biases are, which you're not comfortable with, all those things, the church is going to become a much more welcoming place. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I mean, what else can you say about right, that? Right. Right. Yeah. And and my stuff is never as concrete as as some folks, even though like I I believe that if it's not practical, it's probably not ministry. But when I think about my my vision for the for, for the future of the ELCA and what I hope to see from decolonized Lutheranism and whatever the Holy Spirit's up to right now. Um, you know, a couple things, a couple phrases I, I constantly put out there. I believe we're in a time of holy experimentation and holy uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I really hope the church leans into it. Uncertain times, less people, um, less resources, surrounded by a world that we no longer are in step with is actually how the church was founded. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> and right, I, right. I, I don't see it as a bad thing. Um, the 50s were an aberration, if you look at church American church history, right. and we're never going to reach those levels again. Um, and so I really hope we lean into this time of holy experimentation. I really hope that we ask ourselves the deep and abiding question of what does it mean to serve Jesus Christ? Um, as a church and as members of that. Um, and, and, and what can we do away with that's kind of getting in the way of that? And then I also hope that like we become communities of faith, that our, our, our buildings, which have become financial albatrosses around our necks, um, our, our, our traditions that really aren't traditional, or actually things that are traditional that really aren't church tradition, we're willing to jettison so we can be more of a place where the community gathers and we just happen to worship over there. You know, um, yep. that's really kind of like my vision for things. And the third point 
that, that I always harp on, and, and it sort of falls in line with Bishop Eaton's thinking. Whenever I look at the ELCA, I see 3.8 million or 3.5 million potential allies in positions of power and privilege who can join me and others in the fight for equality and for a vision of God's justice and, and, a, and a foretaste of the banquet that's to follow. Mm. And that's what I see. And, and part of that's being very naive. <laughs> and part of that is, quite frankly, I haven't been, you know, as, as someone will, will be quick to point out, I haven't been Lutheran that long. I see 3.5, 3.8 million potential allies in a battle that's already waging across our country that all claim to be theologians of the cross. And so I see boundless potential in our church. And, um, and really, some of what you are, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about with this is, you know, stuff that Jeff and I have been hearing as we've been doing this podcast and talking with different leaders, you know, over the last, you know, six or seven months is this idea of holy experimentation, this idea of looking at doing church differently and, and connecting with our communities and just really the, the evangelism of, of telling people about the, the wonderful love of God that comes into our lives and, and the difference that it makes in our lives so that other people can experience that same thing. And, you know, one of the things that I love about what you guys are doing is just kind of bringing all this together and saying, hey, this is going to be kind of the, the starting point of great things to come in, in, into our church. And if we can really embrace this and have the allies that you are talking about and, and so really spreading this message, you know, I see a continued bright future for, for what we are able to do as, as the Lutheran Church. And the other thing, too, is just like um, me and Lenny are here. Kwame Pitts is here. Tahuna Rash, an Indian-American, she's here. Yep. Yeah, my professor Peter Bedenagamani from India. He's here. Jose David Rodriguez from Puerto Rico. He's here. So there are a good number of us who have and who are being raised up to positions of leadership who are here. This church has made a wonderful space to us, and we found support. This is the word of hope that I want to try to share with folks. Is that you know I'm a little bit more on the on the angry side than some of my colleagues. No. But, so there, but, but I want to stress with folks, the, re, the force of that anger is actually my compassion and this frustrated sense of hope. Because I know what's there. I see it. Yeah. And the thing is, is that there are actually lots of reasons to have hope. And all you have to do is simply look around and realize that there are places where the church that everybody's hoping to be um, already exists, and then always <laughs> simply live into that. Right. Yeah. Amen. Definitely. And I, I really appreciate you guys coming on and, and talking about this and getting the word out. And this is this is an important message. And and I hope that you know our podcast listeners will will get a lot of value out of this. I know that they will. And so I really appreciate you guys coming on. No problem. Oh, one last little thing. We are going to have a conference. So make sure that your listeners, that there's some kind of a link to the website. So everybody keep your eyes out. There is going to be a conference, most likely here in Chicago in October, on these very, very same thoughts. But it's not going to be like a usual conference where you have a bunch of people sitting in chairs in and around tables. It's going to be a mixture of worship and singing. And it's going to be a time of not only reflection on our identity as Lutherans, but a time for us to be revived and renewed in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, spread the word, keep your ears peeled, be watching on the website in the next couple of weeks and Twitter and Facebook, because we're going to, once we get a bunch, once we get stuff set, we want everyone to be there. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, I also want to give a shout out to just to Ray, uh, L, Paul, um, Tahina, Jason, Andrew, Kwame, and Angie, um, who've all been um, extremely um critical and they're a part of and, and really are all members of of decolonized lutheranism how about if people want to connect with you individually what's a good way for them to do that and you, you can feel free to put my email up um you also we also have on the website there's actually a um a, a link that 
if you click on it, it says join the movement, they can then get us a message that way. We've actually gotten a fair amount of responses from that. I'm Lenny Duncan on everything. I'm Lenny, <laughs> I'm Lenny Duncan on Twitter. I'm Lenny Duncan. Yeah, I'm Lenny Duncan on Facebook. I'm Lenny Duncan on uh, Instagram. I'm Lenny Duncan. You know, I, I cornered the market on Lenny Duncan's. <laughs> One of a kind, right? <laughs> right. So... So you get, and I and I, I don't mind connecting with people on Facebook or social media. I think social media is such a great underutilized tool for this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it did bring down the Egyptian government. I mean, let's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, the power you know, holds. So please, you know, uh, you, you definitely add me on Facebook. Uh, also, I have a, um, I have a blog, uh, formerlyunchurched.com. Um, so. You can always check out stuff there and contact me through there, or you can email me, you know, at lduncan at ltsb.edu. My email address is fherrera at lstc.edu, and uh, of course I got Facebook, but I also got a blog called orlovesrevolution.blogspot.com. Cool. So yeah, we you can you can find we'll probably put all these things up on the decolonized Lutheranism page at some point too. Yeah, and we'll we'll put links on on the show notes here so it'll be easily accessed for for people. But any uh, any last parting thoughts before we before we wrap up here? No, just God bless you guys for coming and talking to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. thank you. This has been a great great time together. God bless you both, and uh, thanks Brother. for what you're doing. Well, thank you guys for a wonderful uh, conversation about what, what you are doing. And I am so thankful that you came on to the podcast. Yeah, me too. I think we could, uh, we could talk all day. Right. And, and so it, it, has been, it has been great. And I just want to let everybody know out there that we will put in our show notes different ways to get in touch with Lenny and Francisco and to learn a little bit more about uh, the movement that they have um, started and... If you want to ch check them out, please do so at, with the links in the, in the show notes. And um, if you want to check us out a little bit more, too, uh, we'll have some more thoughts on our conversation today coming up in a future podcast episode. So you can connect with us at twobaldpastors.com or on Facebook, facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. Be blessed. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. I'm so sick of seeing Doobie Brother Jesus. I don't want a black Jesus. I just want a Jewish one. Because I love Jesus!